Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Uh, we're in the book of First Peter as we continue our study in the grace of exile, our study through the book of First Peter. Today we're in First Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, verse 7 through 9. And as you're getting yourself situated, I just want to let you know I'm thinking about you, praying for you, so thankful to God that you're connecting with the church in this way, and I pray that the Lord is watching over you, blessing your life. Uh, let's read together, though, 1 Peter 4, verse 7 through 9. Just a short little passage today. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, Lord, we come to you today, and we pray that the atmosphere that Peter talks about in this passage, and as well in our next passage next week, that this atmosphere would be the atmosphere of Calvary Monterey and of every person who's part of this church and watching or listening to this teaching. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember my first years of walking with Christ. They actually came in Bible college. Uh, I was fortunate in that the little school that I went to was not just a learning center, but also a loving society. Uh, this love that I experienced there was really important to me at that time in my life because my walk with God was just brand new. And at that point, you know, I was so young, I just hadn't really experienced solid Christian friendships or, or community up to that point in my life. I'd been raised in the church. I was a church kid. But the church to me was something that grown-ups loved to be part of and something that I really couldn't relate to yet. So it was good for me to engage in Christian community uh, on my own in that place. And there were aspects of those early days that were really formative for me. They really refreshed me. Uh, three of which are mentioned in our passage in these three verses today. Uh, for instance, uh, before I went there, I, I really hadn't spent all that much time in my life praying, um, especially with people. Uh, but while there, I learned to pray, you know, sometimes alone, sometimes with others, sometimes spontaneously, sometimes in planned moments. I learned to cry out to God about everything and anything in my life. Uh, I also learned uh, to love people there, and I grew to appreciate the loving community uh, that was established there. Everyone, of course, was far from perfect. So many of us were so young and immature. But we were living there together in very close quarters, and so that provided a lot of challenges. But love is, I think, what helped us form some deep bonds and put up with, endure one another. And also there was hospitality. Uh, that was so refreshing to me. People opening up their uh, homes and their lives, especially older staff who were there to minister to us. 
in an attempt to show us younger believers how to live our lives. They made it clear. They wanted to help us become mature followers of Jesus and his way. They wanted to support us. And I think that many Christians love the sound of that kind of life, where there's prayer and there's love and there's hospitality. You know, we hear Jesus's words that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. We, we read of the church in the book of Acts and how they loved and served and prayed for each other. And as life beats down upon each one of us, we can't help but think that maybe there are key relationships in the church that could help us experience Jesus's easy yoke and his light burden. If you think about it, it's hard to go through the human life and it's hard to live for Jesus. Uh, Living in a broken world, you know, perhaps carrying out our singleness or living a married life God's way, raising children, navigating careers, handling rough family dynamics, anxiety, stresses, pressures, aging, finances. You know, in all these areas, we need help. And we perhaps wonder if other believers might be able to provide it. But this life of communal prayer, of forgiving love and cheerful hospitality that we're gonna think about in this passage today, it's often in short supply in our modern pace and time. Schedules are full. Responsibilities, endless. Finances, short. And on top of that, we live far apart from each other. And in our fatigue and lack of any real emotional, financial, or time margin, I think it just becomes easier to stare at a screen for hours than to pursue Christian relationships. So for many of us, the kind of experience that Peter and the rest of the New Testament describes, it's a pipe dream. Occasionally, a well-meaning preacher will propose this prayerful, loving, and hospitable community version of life again, but we know that he doesn't understand how full and overwhelming life has become. But still, through all of that, the words of Jesus persist. He called his disciples out of the normal flow of life. And he still calls his disciples out of the normal flow of life. He still says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He still prioritizes people above everything else. He still envisions a beautiful atmosphere of prayer and love and hospitality. And in our passage today, we discover that Peter had that vision as well. And he had a good reason for having this vision. In verse seven, he said, the end of all things is at hand. Now, this is not a random statement from Peter. You know, he's just writing, 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 and then all of a sudden, I gotta tell you something, the end of all things is at hand. No, he'd been talking about the end of all things in various ways. He talked about Jesus's resurrection. From the very beginning of the letter, he talked about the living hope that we have. And he talked in our last passage about a resurrection that leads to not only the final resurrection, but a day of judgment for all people, especially those who malign the church. 
Peter knew, in other words, that everyone would give an account for their lives. He knew that Jesus would eventually come and wrap up human history with his return. He knew that the final stage had been set. And he believed all this was, in his description, at hand, close by, nearby. Now, brothers and sisters, we have to reflect on this. We are living in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. Peter said this 2,000 years ago because he was in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. And we are still in that same stage today, the era of the church. Creation, fall, Abraham's calling, Israel's establishment, Israel's restoration, and all the promises of Israel's prophet, all of it have occurred. The son was sent. Jesus took on human flesh. He fulfilled the law that condemned us all as guilty before God. And then he substituted himself upon the cross. And after a burial of three days, Jesus rose. He ascended back to the father and promised to return. All these important movements in the drama of God's redemptive story are past tense. And Peter wanted the church that he wrote to, and all of us today, to, to understand we are living in the final stage. The end is imminent, at hand, according to Peter. It could happen at any time. Now, I understand if some of you listening to me right now, you are resistant to Peter's words. You don't want to agree with Peter. Some of you might be embarrassed by end times preachers who exposit current events more than they exposit God's holy word. Or perhaps even take it a step further and set dates, predict dates of Christ's return only to be proved wrong over and over again. But we shouldn't run from that embarrassment into the arms of a lie. We shouldn't adopt a worldly position that humankind is making progress or must fight for progress to bring its own utopian world into existence or just to survive. Rather than erroneously believe that human progress will save us and rather than make predictions about when Jesus is going to return, we should hold fast to the hopeful confidence that we will be delivered by the climactic event of Jesus's return. His return will usher in God's final judgment, his glorious reign and a new heaven and a new earth. Only Jesus can bring the restoration that we crave. Now with all of that as a backdrop, the end is near, the restoration, the final stage is coming. How should we live our lives today? That's what this passage is about. If we're truly in the final stage of God's redemption, redemptive plan, what should Christian community and life look like right now? If we are, as this letter tells us, exiles and sojourners and pilgrims, temporary residents of our host culture, how do we do life right now? And if, as possessors of the gospel, we're part of of the answer to society's ills because we have the gospel that society needs, how should we live? Peter said at the end of verse seven or in verse seven, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay, what this means 
is that our community, according to Peter, according to God's word, we need to have a prayerful atmosphere, a prayerful atmosphere. You see, when living as exiles, when when far from our true home with Christ, a home that is at hand, according to Peter, but still feels so far away at times, we can pray. And brothers and sisters, I want to say it this way, we can pray. It's not impossible or beyond our experience. We can be a praying people. And I encourage you to pray. When the church is marginalized by society, prayer is of extreme importance. Maybe God will change society as a result of our prayers, but he will certainly change us as we pray. We will become strengthened, emboldened, calmed, focused, and light as we lift our burdens to him. But prayer is often hard or even neglected. You know, I know I wish that I prayed more than I do and better than I do, especially with other people. You know, it can be intimidating to think about what strong personal or church-wide prayer life might look like. But we have to be on guard against lies. You know, on one side, there's the lie that we will never be good at prayer. And on the other side, there's the lie that says, no one really prays anymore. Neither are true. And both can be used as an excuse for prayerlessness. Perhaps you might be helped today by being less idealistic about the subject of prayer. And I find that sometimes people get these very idealistic visions of what a healthy prayer life will look like. And and one way to become less idealistic is by planning to pray a little bit more and a little bit better than you do right now. If you currently spend more time brushing your teeth than you do praying to God, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to plan a three-week trip to a monastery to try to spend the whole time in prayer. Instead, determine to spend 10 minutes each day in quiet and in prayer before God. I remember hearing a record weight, a record holding weightlifter answer a question that an interviewer gave him about how it felt to lift as much weight as he could lift. You know, what does it feel like to have that much weight on the bar was the question that someone asked. And he responded by asking his questioner how much they could lift and what their maximum effort lift felt like. He then told them, it feels just like that. (laughs) The way that it feels for you reporter to lift your 135 pounds is what it feels like for me, this record holder would say, to lift my 400 or 500 pounds. The idea is that he wasn't always that strong. He built up that strength over time. And at each stage of his training, he lifted what he could and he grew stronger as a result. And the same will happen to you if you faithfully add to your prayer life, bit by bit, increment by increment. So let me spend a moment casting a vision for the prayerful atmosphere that I think we could have more and more of here at Calvary Monterey. Incrementally, I hope that we can grow in this atmosphere. 
First, I wanna encourage you to be a person who prays on a personal and private level. You know, Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7 says that we should not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Part of what this means is that you, you have your own anxieties. You have your own reasons that you're thankful to God. And you have your own requests. So pray them to the Lord. Personally, privately, cry out to him. And as Jesus said, your father who sees in secret will reward you. But I'd also encourage you not to just pray alone, but pray with your group of people, your group of believers. Uh, This might be your life group. This might be a discipleship group that you're in. It might be a mentoring relationship that you've partnered in. It might be a Bible study that you're part of. Those are all really great places to partake in prayer. You know, when hundreds of people come together for a corporate all-together church gathering like we do on Sundays, um, practically speaking, only a few representative people are going to be able to pray on behalf of the whole group. But when a group of 10 people are gathered together, everybody can pray. Everybody gets a chance. I'd also encourage you to pray with your ministry teams. You know, in the church or outside of the church, some of us are engaged in different acts of service or ministry to our community or or church family. And before you engage in the activity or the service or even at separate times, spend moments with those ministry people praying and crying out to God asking him to bless the endeavor that you're about to engage in and to prepare the soil of people's hearts to receive what you're going to be doing for them. Also, I'd say pray with key people in your life, your key relationships. Uh, For some of you, it might mean a, a, a friend that you're very close with. For others of you, it might mean a spouse that God has put in your life. These can be great people to pray with because you're probably closer to them than you are with anyone else. So this means that you can kind of get straight to the point. They already know what to pray for in your life. You can get straight to the point in prayer more quickly, and it brings you closer together. I'd also encourage you perhaps to consider praying with other people who have similar careers to you. You know, many of you have unique challenges that you have to navigate in your specific career field. And praying with others who share those same or similar burdens of life can be really helpful. And then finally, I I want to encourage you to pray, actually not finally, I've got a couple more things to say. I want to encourage you to pray spontaneously. You know, throughout your day, there's going to be decisions that you have to make, stresses that come into your life, or reasons for celebration. And You know, Paul told us to pray without ceasing, so I want to encourage you to spontaneously throughout the day be talking to the Lord about your life. And then I also, kind of in connection to that, want to say pray reflexively when needs arise. You know, when someone else, another believer, tells you about a difficulty in their lives, I want to encourage you to immediately, right then, commit it to God in prayer. 
Set that tone. Be about that. And then I want to encourage you lastly, my true lastly on this one, pray for non-believers. You know, I, I, I might mean or, or do mean, you know, to pray for those who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. That's, of course, something we should be about. But I also mean to pray for them in their areas of need or pain. You know, when somebody tells you about a difficulty they're passing through, um, commit to praying for them, and at times even ask them if you can pray for them. Uh, Bring those needs to your group of people and intercede seriously for that person. You never know what God might do in their lives as a result of your prayers, and that could open a door for witness and testimony and telling them more about Jesus. All this prayer is meant to be done, Peter says, with a specific attitude. Look at it there in verse seven. He said we should have self-control and a sober mind. Okay, those, those words, they, they're all meant by Peter to go together. They're, they're meant to indicate a clear-minded and disciplined response to Peter's assertion that the end of all things is at hand. We're not supposed to respond to the idea that the end of all things is at hand by being apathetic or panicking or being bitter, but we're to respond with a responsible life. You know, Jesus taught about this. To borrow from one of his illustrations, we shouldn't be caught without oil in our lamps. Instead, we must remain even-killed and straight-thinking, not despite the fact that we are in the last stage of God's redemptive plan, but because of the fact we're in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. We of all people should be calm and collected because we're confident, we know what's gonna happen. For an example of this calm and prayerful resolve, I hold out the life of Daniel to you. Pastor Riley talked about him a couple of weeks ago. After many years of service in exile in Babylon, There was a law passed that no one could pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. Anyone who violated this law was supposed to be thrown into a den of lions. Uh, Daniel, though, for his part, he was not about to take a 30-day break from praying to God. There was no way that was going to happen. So in Daniel 6, verse 10, it says, He went to his house after the law was signed, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That was his practice. Despite danger, Daniel calmly prayed. He knew God's kingdom would last forever and it impacted the way that he conducted himself. All right, but Peter also wanted the church to develop not just a prayerful atmosphere, but a loving atmosphere, a loving atmosphere. Look at verse eight with me. He said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. All right, love is the priority of a good church. Now, the fruit of the Spirit according to Paul in Galatians 5 verse 22, is love and more, but where the spirit is, love is. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13, Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
Now, love is especially important when the church is out of favor with society at large. You know, with a, with a loving atmosphere in here or in house or in the church, we can endure a whole lot of adversity and difficulty outside of the church. And when a believer moves to a new town, a lot of times they'll look for a good church by finding one with good preaching or good worship or a good kids program. And each of those elements can form a great weekly gathering, but without love, a sharing of life together, the church will not form the alternative community and society they are meant to form. We're so much more than a big gathering of people once a week. We're, we're, we're a community meant to love and serve each other throughout the week. Now, Peter highlighted the importance of love in a few ways. First, in verse eight, Peter said that we should love one another. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't love the non-believing world, but it does mean that other believers are meant to have a special place in your heart and prayers and life. He also said that we should do this above all else there in verse eight. And he said also in verse eight that we should love one another earnestly, earnestly. The Greek word for earnestly is one that they would use to describe the stretched out muscles of someone sprinting in a race. So Peter is envisioning max effort love. Now it seems good to acknowledge the work and the effort required to form a truly loving Christian community. To partake in the lives of others, it requires our time. It takes effort, but it's important. You know, when I'm in Lake Tahoe with my family, my kids persecute me a little bit because they want me to, to be in the water and I don't go out in the water all that often. It's just so cold, it's snow melt. But once I'm ready to get in the water, there's only one way to get in, not little by little, you just gotta jump all the way in. One cannot forever exist on the fringe of a gathering of believers and expect good things to happen. You just can't do it. You can't live on the fringe of a church, come to a gathering every now and then and expect good things to happen. Don't forever tow the water. Eventually, you must jump into relationships with others. It's the way that Christ designed the church to work. When a group loves like this, according to Peter, with persistence and earnestly, he says that something beautiful happens. He says, they create a community that covers a multitude of sins. This is probably a quotation from Proverbs 10, verse 12, but, but what does Peter mean? How does our love for one another cover a multitude of sins. Well, first, I think we should say it doesn't cover a multitude of sins theologically. In other words, Peter does not mean that our love can atone or cleanse or forgive in the sight of God. Uh, you cannot love someone so well that you pay for your own sins or for their sins. Okay, nor is Peter talking about ignorance or denial or the justification of sin, especially ones that are immediately in danger somebody else. And if someone is in danger of being harmed, 
the perpetrator's actions should be exposed and confronted in the church. It should not be taken as an excuse for church scandal, nor should it be taken as justification for avoiding clear sins in others that need to be lovingly confronted. What Peter means by this statement that love covers a multitude of sins is that the intensity of our love for one another helps us socially. Our love for one another can help us deal with the warts and imperfections in others and can help them deal with ours. I don't know if you ever had moments where you get a frighteningly clear picture of what it's like for people to deal with your worst version of yourself. You know, sometimes this happens to me. Uh, for instance, in, in my house, um, I'm kind of known as the, the dishwasher dictator. You know, nobody calls me that, but it's real clear that I have a specific way that I'd like the dishwasher to be loaded. In my mind, everyone on earth knows this specific way that the dishwasher should be loaded and crusted on food particles that haven't been rinsed off properly, they just do not evade my inspection. I will find them. And sometimes I even think that my children enjoy it when I give them a diatribe about proper dishwasher etiquette. But at other times, I hear myself talking and I think, wow, you're tons of fun. I'm glad that my family loves me, but the reality is it takes a level or magnitude of grace to overcome even my own sins and imperfections. So love covers a multitude of sins. Love is important to Peter because it covers those sins. And Peter must think that we have a multitude of sins that need to be covered, and we do in the church. We're imperfect people. It's nice that Jesus forgave others in the church, but now we're left to tolerate and put up with them. We're bound to mistreat and mistake and struggle through relationships. But a solid community of believers living with the end at hand loves each other well. And that love helps us deal with faults and sins and imperfections. And I don't know, as I think about this during our cultural moment that we're in, to me there's something really refreshing about a love that covers a multitude of sins. I just think that grace and mercy, they're in really short supply these days. For a lot of people, the idea of being in a community is that every slight offense must be addressed or the offender must be avoided at all costs. But Peter says instead that we must above all love one another earnestly. Confrontation or avoidance aren't the only options. There's also love that's so intense that it's able to cover and deal with sin. This love takes the forgiveness of Christ and applies it to the offense and the offender. And it just moves on, it's powerful. Now this brand of love is important when we're forming a Christian community that has to live as exiles in our society. You see, we're bound to have a billion differing perspectives and backgrounds uh, among us, 
But love helps us overcome our differences. It's really refreshing. All right, lastly, Peter tells us not only that we need to have a prayerful atmosphere and a loving atmosphere, but a hospitable atmosphere. He said again in verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. All right, I think it's important for all of us to catch this vision for hospitality and its importance in the age to come. You know, some have called hospitality the foundation of the Christian movement, the key strategy that has enabled gospel expansion and gospel living. Now, Jesus, of course, opened up his life to us. He, he prepares a forever home for us. So let's emulate Jesus by opening our lives and our homes to other believers in our sphere of influence. This is especially important when the church is marginalized because we need safe places of refuge and rest. We, we, we really need each other when society says no to us. But what did hospitality mean to Peter and these early Christians? Well, did, did Peter, in other words, envision maybe what we envision when we think of hospitality? Did he envision coffee cake or housewarming gifts or smooth jazz playing in the background? Did he envision hours of prep work, cleaning the house, getting the bathroom all tidy in an attempt to create an immaculate space so that we can show people our immaculate lives for two hours? I don't think that's what Peter meant. Many scholars think that the early Christians understood these exhortations around the idea of Christian missionaries who often needed accommodations as they traveled. Um, you know, lodging, especially at inns, was way too expensive and a lot of times had a bad reputation or sometimes weren't even available. But believers, they could open up their homes to these traveling gospel workers, and by doing so, they would join together in God's mission. If that's true, then hospitality has something to do with advancing the kingdom. And while it's still good for us to open up our homes to traveling gospel workers, perhaps our application will be different. Perhaps we should be creative about using our homes and lives to advance the kingdom. So what does that mean for us? How does that look? How can we use our homes for the gospel advancement in our era? Or considering how their hospitality was a meant, meant to address a problem, what problems can our hospitality address? As I already said, our hospitality can provide a place of refuge for struggling Christians. That's one option. You know, we're in exile. The world is not our home. This can cause despair or loneliness or fatigue or fear, and hospitality can help ease these burdens. Imagine a believing young man working in an environment where coworkers boast all day long about their sexual exploits or pass around sexually explicit images. All day, temptation and defilement and frustration washes over this young man. He's discouraged. At the end of the day, if he could leave his work site and go somewhere that other like-minded believers are, that could be a source of great encouragement in his life. Our homes and our lives and our coffee shops 
And our hiking trails can be sources of hospitality, helping people find the refuge that they need from a painful and hostile world. But our hospitality can do more than just provide a place of refuge. It, they can, it can also produce disciples. Refuge is great, but many believers have never been closely exposed to healthy men, healthy women, or healthy families. We need models to follow, people to look up to. And to open up your home is to open up your way of life. You know, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. And hospitality can provide a bunch of pictures of who you are and how you've built your life. And our hospitality can also be not just a refuge and a way to produce disciples, but a source of evangelism as well. You know, the, the, the media might portray Christians in a certain way. I know movies always portray, I've never seen an accurate movie portrayal of what my Christianity looks like. We're always weird in the movies. And by being hospitable, uh, your hospitality, opening up your life in that way, can make the big, scary, weird Christian become approachable. And that might lead to greater gospel conversations down the line. Now, in a sense, all of this that I'm talking about today, it takes work and it takes planning, especially here with hospitality. You can't just really add this to your life without first subtracting something from your life. But in another sense, especially with this last one, hospitality, you can, in a sense, just add this to your life. Think about it. You're gonna eat food you're gonna watch shows, you're gonna read books, you're gonna lounge around the house, you're gonna go grocery shopping, but you can do it either with or without other people. Try doing more of these things with others, especially other believers. Go low prep and hang out with people. And this takes a correct attitude. You know, Peter said it this way. He said, we gotta show hospitality to one another, verse nine, without grumbling, is what he said. You know, Peter knows what we're like. He knows that this kind of hospitality, it costs us. It's not always convenient. So he gives us an attitude check. We have to go uh, through this in a way where we get over our inconveniences and pursue one another. All right, let me conclude this teaching and this exhortation to create a prayerful atmosphere, a loving atmosphere, and a hospitable atmosphere with some concluding applications. Number one, ask yourself the question, do I react to the knowledge that the end of all things is at hand with anything other than self-controlled and sober-minded prayer? You know, just think about your reaction to that concept that the end of all things is at hand. Keeping in mind that this is a truth that has been true for 2,000 years now. Peter wrote this a long time ago, and it was just as true then as it is today. The end of all things is at hand. We're in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. Number two, assess your current prayer routines. You know, just think about them, assess them, and then find a way to incrementally improve them. Number three, Start a weekly prayer meeting with people that you know. You know, a lot of this, the hospitality, the love, the prayer, it can just be done by reaching out to a handful of believers that you're already kind of close with and say, hey, do you guys want to get together 
for a season of time, a couple of months. Let's pray every week. You know, meet at my place, meet at a coffee shop, whatever. Let's pray for a couple of weeks. Or, or let's pray weekly for a period of time. Number four, ask yourself, have I avoided other Christians in my everyday life because it isn't working for me? Okay, uh, I call this the love connection uh, mentality. I don't know, when I was growing up, they always showed these re- reruns of this dating show called The Love Connection, and they were trying to connect these two people to see if there was a love connection. I think a lot of Christians, they have this perspective about Christian fellowship. They go to a life group, they, try to, they wanna see if there's a love connection. Uh, but if you've avoided Christian fellowship because it's not working for you, you gotta keep pressing on. There might be an issue with your own heart, something God wants to develop inside of you. There's no judgment there, but you just gotta keep pushing in to Christian fellowship and relationships. Number five, identify areas you might have been too easily offended by another believer. This shouldn't take a whole lot of imagination because there are things that Christians do that can offend you all the time. So just think about maybe an area where you were just a little bit too on edge over something another believer did. Number six, host a life group or a discipleship group in your house or in your apartment, or if you're like a teenager in your bedroom with other teenagers in your office space or in your local coffee shop, host a life group. And then number seven, assess your current schedule and find ways to include believers in the things that you already do. All right, I love you guys, and I hope and pray that we can have this atmosphere more and more, but as you can tell, this is not something that, that I can do by myself. I'm just trying to show you what the word says so that we can together cultivate a prayerful, loving, and hospitable atmosphere here in this church because I believe that we will need it more and more in the days to come. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.